So let us stand for the word of God. We are going to read Ruth chapter 1. Now look at your neighbor and say it's going to be a long one, but we can do it. Here we go. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the two of his sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why should you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons? Who could become your husbands? Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orba kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Good job. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Things don't just happen. 
Sometimes it seems like they do, right? <laughs> seems like things do just happen. But I have found that even among people who don't know whether there really is a God, when things happen in their lives, sometimes they will say to me something like this, it really seems like that took place for a reason. Somebody must be orchestrating things. Of course, we who believe in the kind of God that God reveals himself to be in the Bible really believe that God is involved in this world and that in fact, uh, as we find in so many places, God is at work in all things because he is wanting to make all things new, uh, to take what is and to turn it into something that actually glorifies and reflects his ways. Now we believe that, but still when you think about it, that is a rather mind-boggling sort of thing to believe, isn't it? I mean, how on earth God takes all of these decisions that everybody makes, even the rotten ones we make, and he's working it together to bring about something good in our own lives and in this world. So how is that going to be? Well, for the next four weeks, what we are going to be doing is looking at a real-life story of how it is that things don't just happen. As we come to the book of Ruth, that opening chapter that Saul read so well for us today is going to show us how daily decisions are real decisions. I mean, we're making real decisions, but how at the same time God is there and at work in and through each one of them. So we're starting the, the book of Ruth today. Let me say just a few preliminary things. Let me tell you about the literature of the book of Ruth. Um, it's a short story about something that really happened, and it perhaps is the first story like that ever written. At least it's the first one I know about. Uh, the story itself was written almost certainly when King David had become the uh, king of Israel, right around 1000 BC. But the events that it tells about happened much earlier in the time of the Judges, uh, Judges 1-1, which was, would have been several hundred years before uh, King David. And I'll just tell you, Ruth is a well-told story. I think last week I told you I envisioned that a woman wrote it. Though we don't know for sure. Uh, but the more I read it, the more convinced I am <laughs> that it was. But I'll tell you this, if we have any uh, English teachers who are here, she would get an A-plus in a writing class. Uh, she was especially strong at, at concise characterization. She just takes brief dialogue and a few little phrases here and there, and you read it, and you feel like you know the people who are involved. And I'll tell you, just like uh, many of the stories that we watch on television or that we read about in our day, each one of the chapters ends with a teaser. It makes you think, what's happening next? Almost a cliffhanger, and the end of this book is a shocker. Now, let me say a few words about the setting, too. Uh, Ruth, uh, the book opens in, in the first verse to tell us that these events happened in the days when the judges ruled. Uh, you can read about those if you're new to the church in, in the book of Judges. It's the book that happens right before Ruth in the Bible. And the main characteristic of those days was that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I'll tell you, that's sort of self-directed self-centered sort of culture and living had led to well, what you might expect, to violence and, and oppression and all manner of evil. But then we come to this story. And two people who lived during that day are going to show us a completely different way to live. Uh, essentially, in a world in which everyone did what was right in his own eyes, they're going to show us what it looks like when people actually seek to do what is right in God's eyes. But let me tell you this, just like now, 
for them to live a God-directed life in a self-directed world, it was not easy. <laughs> so this morning as we just start in the uh, first chapter, what I've decided to do is to take the decisions that the people in that chapter make and see what we might be able to learn from them to live in this world where we, where we make real decisions, but that things aren't just happening, that God is here. Okay, the first decision we look at is of this man named Elimelech. I call it a questionable decision. Look, look at verse 1. So a man, well, make note of that, that's how it starts, from Bethlehem, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while, it really says for a short while, in the country of Moab. Now, it's interesting for me that for this book, whose uh, title character is a woman, it really is set in a world in which almost every culture in the ancient world was a male-dominated culture. And so that's what it's being written into. And it comes out in verses 1 and 2. Everything that happens in those first two verses, it was the action of this man named Elimelech. Elimelech, the father, is the one who leaves the town in God's promised land. He leaves Bethlehem. Elimelech is the one who chooses that we're all going to be going to this country of Moab. And Elimelech is the one who chooses to live there. Uh, the two teenage boys and his wife Naomi, they simply had to go with him. Women and children back in that world had very, very little voice. So I don't know if you noticed that, I mean, they're just mentioned secondarily in these opening two verses because that's the kind of world into which this story is written. But I've I, I got to tell you this, that's going to be turned around completely very, very soon. And just one of the things that God's Word is going to show us in the book of Ruth is what I think we would call in our day, women's lives matter. Now, Bible scholars disagree about whether Elimelech made a God-honoring decision or a bad decision when he went to Moab. Now, on one side, what we have here is a father who is concerned about his family starving to death. You, you heard it, Bethlehem. And, and you know what the name Bethlehem means? You might know it from Christmas season. It means house of bread. Isn't it ironic the town of the house of bread did not have any bread? <laughs> And somehow Elimelech had heard that there was food less than 100 miles away in the country of Moab. I have a, a map up here just so you can envision what they're going to be doing. <clears throat> so there you see on the left, see Bethlehem just under Jerusalem. And you go past the Dead Sea on the other side and you see Moab, the place where they're going to go. It's less than 100 miles. The Dead Sea really changes the climate there. So one part of it, uh, there was no bread. On the other side, there was some food. Now, I, if I had preached this mm, 10 or 11 years ago, I would have made a strong point that Elimelech made a very, very bad decision. But something happened in my own life when I first came here to Pasadena that sort of made me uh, soften just a, a little bit. When I was down in old Pasadena, I had the privilege, the blessing of meeting a man who really became a, sort of a, a budding friendship. He's from Guatemala, and he was working there. And as I talked with him there, um, I found out he had two little boys back in Guatemala and a wife, just like Elimelech. And I, I said, why, why did you come up here? Uh, this must be hard. I was trying to figure out how to, how to get at this. Why would you leave your wife and boys? And he looked at me and he said, Pastor, I love them and I think about them every minute of every day. But the choice I had before me was whether to leave my family and drive money so that they could eat or have my family starve. 
Pastor, what would you do? So I'll, I'll tell you, I'm not going to be so hard on Elimelech today. <laughs> that relationship changed my way of even looking at this sort of thing. Uh, on the other hand, I, I think you do need to know that everything about the move, particularly to Moab, that, that Elimelech made, uh, seems to have been a bad choice. I'll, I'll tell you just a, 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 the reason. We know a number of things about Moab, and not one of them is good. Uh, the whole way that, that the nation, the people started was with a man named Lot actually entering into an incestuous relationship with his uh, daughter. You can read about that in Genesis 19. And the Moabites had become known for just rampant sexual immorality, something that when the Israelites had gone through there, they had been tempted and gotten engaged in themselves. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 25. And in these very days that Ruth lived, uh, there was a king there, King Eglon, an awful man, who had had uh, the people of Israel under his oppressive leadership for 18 years. You can read about that in Judges 3. So when you put all those things together, you can see why Elimelech decided he would go there, and it says, only for a short while. But the short while becomes a long while, and Elimelech dies, and then his sons marry Moabite women. So let me just say this. Yeah. It may not have been the wisest decision that when he tried to, to help his family survive to go to Moab. It's a, it's a place where no God-fearing Jew would ever take his young family. Now, I've thought about what do I want to say to you about this? <laughs> there are a thousand things I want to say to you about it, but you know, prayerfully, there's only one I want to pass on to you, and it is this. I think everybody who's come to church here today in any of our services, can relate to Elimelech in that we look back on our lives, maybe even this past week, and you and I can think about decisions that we made that we know were not right. Or, or at least some that we wonder whether they were wise. I can't even tell you how many times I, I as your pastor, have had church members who come in and really feel like God has just written them off. They'll never be able to be used by God again simply because of some decision they've made in the past. You may even think when you heard the story, as Saul was reading it, that the reason why Elimelech died and the sons died was it was divine punishment upon him for making this rotten decision. But let me just tell you this, that is not the point of this story. When you read it, the Bible makes no claim that they died because of Elimelech's decision. It, just mark it down, death comes to all of us in this world, and it comes for a whole host of reasons. Now, the point of the story of Ruth, as it relates to this man Elimelech, is something that doesn't come out until the end. I've, I've been wanting to hold the end, but I've got to bring out a little bit of this. You find it in, Romans, uh, in, in Ruth chapter 4. See, the Israelites knew that death came to all people, but the deepest concern of the fathers in that culture was that their name would be able to remain attached to the property and that that property would be passed down to their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. If God were wanting to punish him, a divine punishment, that would have been taken away. Elimelech would have been forgotten. But when you read it through, God is at work in all things. Things don't just happen. And in these events, and if you look at chapter 4, verse 10, if you have your Bible, just look there. It said, God wove these events so that the name of Elimelech will be maintained with his property, and thus his name will not disappear from among his family and hometown. Let me just tell you, God does not reject us 
because we make an unwise decision. Uh, so I'll tell you, as I read it, I imagine that probably Elimelech should have sought God's guidance more fully. I, I really imagine that like most of the people in his world, he sought to do what was right in his own eyes. And that's not necessarily bad. That's sometimes just when we have a hard decision, we just try to make the best decision that we can. It might have been that if he had really surrendered this to God, he would not have taken his wife and boys to Moab. But I've got to tell you this. When he, and when you and I, like him, made the kind of decision that now seems unwise, God did not write him off. And he doesn't do that to you either. Do you remember two weeks ago, if you were here, the God we believe in is gracious. He is merciful. He is forgiving. He is the God of a second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance. I just want you to take this home with you today. God does not abandon you forever because of some decision that you made in your past. He loves you. He finds ways to make things new. And on a day like this, he simply wants you to run back to him. All right, that, that takes me to the second decision. Here it is. Uh, second decision we see is of Naomi, and I've called it a decision made when angry. Have you ever done that? Okay. Listen to what she says. She gets back to Bethlehem. They call her Naomi, as all of you women shouted out. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Naomi means pleasant. She wasn't. Okay. Call me Mara, <laughs> because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, there are times in all of our lives when it seems like there are no good options open to us. We find ourselves on a path we would have never chosen for ourselves, and while we're there, we have to make a big decision. I mean, that's the way it was for Naomi, because by the end of, of verse 5, all the men in her life were gone. I mean, that's the big point of Ruth chapter 1. The men are gone. Now, to understand this, if you put yourself into Ruth's shoes, this will be harder for us men than for you women. The women take over the story from this point on. You've got to know that even for them, just when the women of their culture met, usually around the well, the thing that they focused on and talked about was their identities as uh, wives and mothers. They lived their lives in reference to, uh, to the men. Being a single woman was hardly an option for them. And if you were a woman who was married and you didn't have children, and especially if you didn't have any sons, you would often be ostracized, even scorned, by the other women. You, you've got to remember, I mean, it's so different for us. It was a male-dominated culture. I mean, that reality permeates this story. I can just imagine when I preach it here in Southern California, so many thinking, well, that's wrong. But, but it's the kind of world in which they live and in which they had to make decisions every day of their lives. It really comes out in many places, like in verse 9. Look at that in which uh, Naomi said to the two daughters-in-law, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest. Where do they find rest? In the home of another husband. Now, let me tell you, this does not mean that this is the way God intends for things to be. And the impact of this patriarchal dominated society came out in horrible ways. 
like the terrible abuse that women had to experience. You will read about them in so many places, like in Judges chapter 19. It's just awful. And you know that the effect of all of this has not been eradicated in our own day. You know that, don't you? It's been so evident in recent days by the growing stories of the abuse that women have experienced. You've been following this? Are you with me here? You see it in the entertainment industry, or you see it in the political world, you see it in the business world, and I'm so sad to say you even see it in the religious world. And it's what this current hashtag MeToo uh, movement, which is simply trying to, to make this come out into the public that all of this is happening in our society. Let me just tell you today that this kind of disrespect for women is not the way God intended the world to be. It's a part of our fallen world. What God intends for our human relationships comes out at the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where God definitively says that male and female together are made in His image. And when sin came and all of these kinds of things came in and became a part of this world, when Jesus came and came to make everything right and to have a Christ-centered community like we are supposed to be, it's supposed to be different. And I think the seminal passage is Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And when the Apostle Paul would turn to them and say, now in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Make note of that. They were still Jews and Gentiles. But what he's talking about is that this hierarchy, that one had a higher standing before God or, or within the life of the church, there is, that's not going to be anymore. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I, I, but I point out this cultural trait in the book of Ruth so that you can make some sense and try to put yourself into the shoes of the people who are making decisions. It came out again in verse 21 when she's angry. I went away full but the Lord has brought me back empty. What, what, what she meant was when she left Bethlehem, she was married to a very prestigious man who had a property, and she had two sons to boot. But when she had to make the decision to come back to Bethlehem, her life was empty. The men were all dead, and she was angry. Angry about everything even angry with God. It's in that context when you read verses 6 through 18 and you have these three women, Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, wrestling with the decisions that they were going to have to make to try to survive and find a place of belonging in the future. That you, it's in that context that this anger of Naomi was playing. How do you make decisions when you're really angry? That's worthy of a sermon, don't you think? A whole sermon, not just a part of one. And it's also one that I could never fully satisfy you with, with every possible issue that happens. Um, it's worthy of talking about and praying about in your small groups. I hope you'll have one. But here's what I've decided to do. Just give you a few uh, biblical pillars, maybe even view them more as parameters in which decisions come when you're really, really angry. Uh, I'll, I'll confess to you up front. It's easier to preach it than to live it. <laughs> but here, I'll just mark down a couple of things I want to say. Number one. So when you're angry, seek to make the decision that is closest to what you think would honor God. And that's even when you're angry with God. And that's what Naomi was. I learned this from her when I read about it. Naomi had few choices, and none of them seemed good to her, but she did have other choices. Uh, 
she could have given up altogether, right? When she was angry, she could have lashed out at Orpah and Ruth, as we so often do, pass on our anger to those who are around us. In her anger, she could have taken her own life. But in the midst of all of this, she decided to return to the people and place of God. And, and as we see, even though she was angry with him, God honored and then blessed that decision. What else do I see? One, two, two. When you're anger, angry, don't deny the anger. Take it to God, then act in anger as God acts in anger. That last phrase, does that surprise you that I say that? Now, I say that, yes, <laughs> I got one honest response. All anger is not bad in the Bible. Far from it. Um, sometimes anger is the right response to what's happening in this evil world. I mean, God repeatedly in the Bible says he is angry about evil and injustice in this world. But notice this. When God is angry about it, it always leads him to step in to make right what is wrong in his creation. And, and if when we're angry, that's what it leads us to do, not to try to do more destruction, but actually to step in and to make right what has gone wrong, then you'll probably be going in the right direction. It's consistent with the ways of God. Of course, you've got to remember this. When God was angry about your sins and mine, what did he do? He sent his one and only son who was willing to give his life for us. And it's because the anger of God, which is real, is always blended with the mercy of God. He loves to show us mercy, and we need to be guided by that. So I'll just tell you, when you're really angry, the first place is to, to, to go directly to God. I read about it in the Bible, and I see people of God always did that. If you want to see a few examples, you can read uh, Psalm 73, a man named Asaph. He was really angry with God. And Jeremiah 19 and 20, you find another one. They came and just in a, in a very raw, transparent, honest way told God everything that was on their hearts because they somehow knew that God would not be blown away by the strength of their words. It is only in an honest relationship to God that you're able to find guidance in the midst of it and resolution for the anger. What else do I see? Okay, this, this, this comes, there's another seminal passage, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. And the first thing out of that is, so when you're angry, don't sin. Easier said than done, right? <laughs> So the Apostle Paul gives a command in verse 26, in your anger do not sin, and he actually is quoting Psalm 4.4. By that, I think that the Bible puts this both in the Old and the New Testament because God knows this is going to be hard for us to do. Because when we're angry, our, our emotions get out of control. And what we want to do is sin. Uh, we're angry with someone, and we want to get back at them and do to them what they've done to us. We want to retaliate uh, about that and so become the same as they are. And God says, don't do it. Step in. And if, in, if justice is not brought about, believe, I, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. In my time, if, you, if justice doesn't happen here, I will bring it about. So I, I, I just want you to know I, how to actually do that is worthy of a lot of prayer and therapy and all sorts of things to count to 10 or whatever. You Slow down when you're angry. Be sure not to sin in the midst of your anger. And the fourth sort of parameter I'll give you is don't get stuck in your anger. So not only did Paul write in Ephesians 4, 
uh, in your anger don't sin, but he also said, don't let the sun go down on your anger or you will give the devil a foothold. I, I don't think this is giving a strict, uh, don't even go to sleep if you're really angry, though I think there's some wisdom in that. Can't sleep well. I think it's really saying, don't let this become a way of life. Don't become that angry person. And, and you see what it says. It will not only hurt that other person, it will eat you up like a cancer. It will ruin your life and all those around you. And it, it, do you see how he puts it? It will be a way that the devil gets a foothold into your own life. So, so don't ignore the anger when you feel it. Don't deny it. But, but don't wallow in it. Don't stay there very long. So, so here's the point I think we see from Naomi. When you're angry and must make a decision, come to God, bring it to him, and then make the wisest decision that you can. And Naomi, I think, portrays a little bit of what this sometimes looks like. I mean, she's bitter and she's angry. She doesn't bottle it up. She expresses it. But at the same time, she makes the kind of decision that God actually blesses. And I pray we will be able to learn to do the same thing. Oh, my time goes. A third decision is our last one we'll look at. You don't want to miss this. A decision that seeks to reflect the heart of God. It's the decision of Ruth. I think you know these verses. They're often used in weddings. Here's what Ruth says when Naomi tries to get her to stay back in Moab. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn my back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Yeah, you've got to see this decision that Ruth makes is the decision upon which the rest of this story hinges. And when you get to the very end of it, it's not only this story that hinges on it. It is their whole nation that's going to hinge on this. And not only that, when you look at it and read it, our salvation hinges upon this decision that Ruth makes. And, and, and note this. In the eyes of the people of her world, this woman who's going to make that decision is the most marginalized and insignificant person imaginable in her society. She's a woman in a man's world. She's a single woman in a married world. She's a widow. She's an immigrant and doesn't belong there. She's a Moabite, the most hated of the immigrants. All of these identities merge in this one young woman. And yet her decision sets into motion what would be the line through whom the Savior of the world was going to come. Anybody else amazed by this? So, so in verse 7, all three of these women set off for Bethlehem, but abruptly and firmly, Naomi stops. She turns to Orpah, and she turns to, to Ruth and says, go back home. You can read about it in that. She does it several times, and her reasoning makes a whole lot of sense. Ask what you would do. She says, if you go back with me, there is no hope for you. You've got to know I can't have any other children for you to marry, and even if I could, you would be too old for them when they get to marrying age. <laughs> she really just says, uh, you know, you're not going to wait that long, but that was there too. If you go with me to Bethlehem, you're going to be hated and nobody's going to ever marry you. And eventually, Orpah goes back to her home country and the Bible doesn't criticize her for it. It would seem from a human perspective to be the best decision in which there are no ideal decisions. But Ruth, 
insisted on staying with Naomi. And, and when we talk about this book, we dare never forget that in human eyes, her decision would almost certainly lead to, to her having a future of alienation, um, a future of poverty, a future of misery. The Bible points us to the key of Ruth making this kind of decision. Now you see it, and I'm going to put the verse up here because this is something you've just got to let sink into your mind. Naomi had just said to them in verse 8 this, May the Lord show kindness. Um, is the Hebrew word hesed up there? Okay. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. This word translated kindness is one of the most important words in the entire Bible. The Hebrew word, as I showed you, is hesed. It, it's the term. It could be translated and is translated in the Bible in so many ways because it really sums up all the positive qualities of God himself. In this one word, it summed up his, God's love, God's faithfulness, God's mercy, God's grace, God's kindness, and God's loyalty. We see all of these in Ruth's decision, don't we? This, this one word sums up all the qualities that you and I should be showing when we actually want to reflect the image of God to our world. It, it, it's what the Bible, the New Testament, means when it calls us to glorify God. When, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. What he means by that is that we should show hesed, love, mercy, forgiveness, grace to all those who cross our paths. I'll tell you, Ruth's decision is, is, is to stay with Naomi is the way that God is to be glorified in this everyday world. It, it's a practical way of showing how to be kind and loyal and faithful. And I've just got to tell you this. When you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you look at how Jesus actually engages with people, in each one of them, what he does is he shows us Hesed. Each one. And he shows us Hesed still. Uh, he loves us before we could ever love him. When you and I have sinned and walked away from him, he is ready to receive us and forgive us and start with us anew. And Jesus promises, promises never to leave you or forsake you. And he declares, where you go, I will go. I tell you, if you're going to glorify God, what Ruth did is a guide as to how you make decisions in your life. You and I should forgive people because we love mercy and we love justice. We should never give up on one another because people are bitter, as unpleasant as Naomi was. You and I should always learn to walk humbly with people because we're walking humbly side by side with God, Micah 6.8. I'll tell you, this story shouts out to us that one person's decision Yes, the decision of the most marginalized, in the eyes of the people, the most insignificant person imaginable in the eyes of the people in her world. Her decision can change everything for the kingdom of God. And so can yours. Okay, Ruth 1 uh, draws to a conclusion such a sense of despair. Naomi, who had left Bethlehem full, comes back empty and embittered, and she comes back as an old woman with a Moabitess. 
Did you notice verse 19? The other woman didn't even mention the Moabitess' name, just mentioned Naomi's, because she was an immigrant woman, and it was as if she wasn't even there. It was as if she didn't even matter. But the question is, could God use her? Would, would God work in and through her life? Well, let's see how the chapter ends. Verse 22. I think I'll put it up here so you can see it. So Naomi, so, pointing back, angry and bitter, Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So, there's going to be bread in the house of bread again. And well, 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 when do the people start reaping again? It's just as Ruth arrives. What a coincidence. So I'll end up, as I began, by reminding you that when you and I believe in the kind of God you and I believe in, we will discover that he is present and at work in all things. In other words, things don't just happen. And at the end of the day, everything that happens will point to the glory of God. And our calling is to live lives that seek to bring glory to his name. May it be. Amen. Amen. Let me lead us in prayer. So, Father, take this word, use it in our lives. As we face decisions this week, use what you have said in this word to direct us and guide us so that, Father, like Ruth, we will make the kinds of decisions that reflect your hesed, your image, your glory, and that other people, other people may see you in us and be drawn to you. For this we pray. Make everything new in our lives, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.